Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Childers had a major disaster on its hands and all the elements that go with that were new territory for Mayor Bill Trevor. One of the things I never actually realised is just how quickly uh, the news media and press started turning up on, on the site. We held that first news conference out of the ambulance station that morning and um, it just really came home to me just how big a tragedy this was, how many countries were involved, how many people were involved and uh, how much it would affect so many people right around the world. The night of the fire was the fifth day of my fifth week as a television reporter. I was stationed in Bundaberg, about a 40-minute drive from Childers, which was part of our catchment area. I was working with this bloke, Mick Gray. In June 2000, I was a cameraman for um, Channel 7, Bundaberg. We were a small team, two journalists and two cameramen who alternated between edit and filming duties. Between us, we'd pump out about six stories a day for a pre-recorded half-hour news bulletin. So the days were long and the deadlines tight, but somehow we made it work. It was crucial that we developed good relationships with key local contacts. We used to um, speak with Ambo Comms and we would give them footage of like crashes and things they go to for their training in return that we would have a pager, it would go off and we would go to different jobs and we'd sort of uh, scratch each other's back thing back in those days. You stuff over any of your emergency services, you stuff over any of your contacts, you're lost. So you need to make sure that you, you build really good bridges with people and, and maintain really good contacts and, and, and keep them happy, I guess. And when we could, we'd head to towns like Childers and stockpile timeless yarns we could piece together at a later date. Breaking news aside, we'd probably go to Childers at the most maybe once a month. And we were the only TV news station in the region. So up until June 23, 2000, Bill Trevor and his council weren't exactly being hammered for media requests. Oh, how that was about to change. So that night, um, you're on call. So there was, you so, had to be on call. At yeah, so I was on call. So I'd, I'd often turn up and have the scanner on at night because I'd, I just hated missing, missing jobs that may have occurred. I actually got a phone call this time and, and I remember it rang the first time and then I just sort of ignored it, rolled back over and then I sort of went, oh, the phone rang and so I looked at, looked at the mobile and, um, and I said, oh, I better ring them back it's the ambulance, unusual that they ring especially by phone, so I've, I've rung them up and basically he said go to Childers, this will be a big one and I said, what is it? I'm not telling you, go to Childers and that's how I knew, so I hopped in the car went to Childers Obviously, in the day, with your um, analogue scanners, we were able to turn those on, and by the time I got close to Childers, had a really fairly good idea of what was actually going on. 
That's unusual to get a call like that. Very unusual. I mean, I think across the board, everybody knew that this was going to be something devastating from the start. So it was really foggy that night. It was incredibly foggy. I've seen nothing like it. Like we've, even today, I I remember just going along that ISIS highway and just almost crawling. You just could not see anything. It was incredible. I I haven't seen anything like it since then. So you come into Childers and and, and it's an unusual kind of town because it is right on the highway. Mm. And... Um, so you approach to there, what, what are you seeing? As we approach Childers, there's an SES guy and his hands come up, big stop sign, so I sort of pulled up in front of him and he said, he said, you can't go in there. And I just sort of said to him, well, you watch the news? And he went, yeah. I said, well, I'm Channel 7, how are you going to watch the news and not know what's going on? He goes, oh, you better get in there. So I went straight in. <laughs> so basically, yeah, we got straight in there and, and, and just, it evolved, I guess, as soon as we, we turned up. Do you remember the first sign of what was happening? Not really. It was it was it was chaos. It was we've turned up and you you, you had the Ambo boss, um, Gary Cottrell. He I saw him around. There was Ambos. There were fireys everywhere. The locals are all out on the street. And some of the survivors and the, and the one image and I, I I remember recording it. And there has been comment from that. Um, what I did it was just a whole whole group of backpackers all with white sheets supplied by the ambulance around them just staring back at the hostel and and it was just the most eerie thing you're just looking at these people and and i don't believe at that time that they any of them knew exactly how significant it was but the potential was there and and you just saw you know i guess the hope emotion in their eyes mick filmed exclusive pictures of the palace on fire now in the tv game that's a pretty big deal but the vision would eventually be handed over to Queensland Police to assist in their investigation. Now, while he's there, he also pulls out a microphone and talks to several backpackers who have just escaped the building. My thanks to the Seven Network for their permission to use these in this podcast. We were were asleep and all of a sudden there was um, a noise, someone was smashing windows. We thought... There was a fight going on or something and we just woke up and someone shouted really loud fire Fire, and it just, you know, you just start running, running and you try, yes, a few people started shouting and there was a a fire exit where we went through and we just ran out and there was lots of smoke and yeah, it just all broke, yeah, and after the fire just came through and with really big... About four minutes, four or five minutes after everything was out, fire was billowing out of all the rooms. There was some, uh, about four people jumped over the balcony onto the shops just there, ran off, and then some actually got rescued by the fire engine up yeah. on the, um, the left side as you look at the Yeah, and people started throwing uh, all their stuff from the balcony down just all everything they could find and and it was you heard people banging on doors who couldn't get out and people smashing trying to smash the doors and yeah but all the yeah. stuff was upstairs yeah it was a lost everything um one of the girls in the room started shouting and i woke up and i could smell it immediately and smoke was weeping in through the, in the window top of our window and we just we're on a balcony so we all piled out of the balcony and it was just chaotic everyone was sort of screaming because nobody knew where anybody was and we just all the smoke was coming out at us and we were lucky we climbed onto the roof next door 
and we could see everything going up, all the flames everywhere. And we had to wait, the firemen came and we climbed down and we could see the whole place went up. It was not very nice to watch, but... Some people were it was a very... When you talk about chaotic, what sort of things did you see when you... Just people trying to get out and not knowing where the other people in their room were. So, there's like ten, sometimes ten people to a bedroom and you can only keep an eye on like one or two. And so nobody knew where anybody was. You and couldn't see a thing inside either. No, the smoke, smoke everywhere. was really heavy. You couldn't see like a hand in front of your face. Mm -hmm. And the noise was the scariest. Actually waking up and thinking, it was like someone's going around with a brick or something, yeah, smashing yeah, everything. Smashing everywhere. Yeah, and they it but it got louder and louder, and that's when we we woke up and the smoke started piling in through the door and a window, and we just. Try We've got a door, so we piled out of the bedroom onto the roof next door. Did you hear any smoke alarms? No, no, we didn't hear any smoke alarms. No. The only thing that woke us up was the sound of everything smashing yeah. all the windows yeah. breaking. It out. sounded like someone was raging through the place, having a yeah. vandalising it all. Around the same time Mick arrived, Wayne Heydrich turned up. Wayne and his wife Kathy ran the local Childers newspaper, the ISIS Town and Country. Do you remember when you were first on scene with that? Sure. Um, look, I received a call from the local security guard, a bloke called Ray Tucker. Uh, he gave me a ring around about oh, 22, 20 to 1, I think it would have been, and just said, mate, you should come into town. The backpackers is on fire. And I thought, right, uh, not realising the scope of what it might be. So I drove into town um, and, yes, the backpackers was on fire. It was brightly ablaze. Uh, my shop is only about 50 metres down the road from the backpackers. So um, I got into my shop. Obviously, the power was out. I'm trying to find my camera in pitch black. Didn't have a torch, so I'm fumbling around in the dark. Eventually found my camera and made it out in the main street. You know, there's lots of lights from uh, the fire engines and the police were there and the ambos, um, but it was so foggy, you know. Uh, it, was, it was a funny thing. That very night, my wife and I had been to a show, uh, and when we came out around about half past nine, it was really foggy, and I said, my God, isn't this a Jack the Ripper night, you know, not realising probably what was going to unfold in a few hours. Uh, I stumbled down the street, started trying to take photographs and so forth, which never turned out very well, but I was struck by people scrambling out of the building, people gathered on the sidewalk, obviously the survivors, and the fireys going about their business. I was having a talk to the um, local ambulance officer, Gary Cottrell, and Gary just said to me, and I remember the words, he said, mate, we're in for something nasty here tonight. And man, was he right, because um, within a couple of hours I was starting to discover bodies. And um, I also had a yarn to the local um, deputy CEO from council, Chris Yosen, and uh, Chris had a list of names and uh, he was running around busily looking at other caravan parks and so forth to see whether or not people had stayed over in other areas that night. So it started to unfold that, yeah, there were going to be multiple fatalities. Do you think you understood the magnitude of what you were filming at the time? No, I can definitely say no. I can say initially I thought, oh, thank God they all got out. 
Absolutely. And I remember Gary Coltrell coming up to me and he said himself, he goes, oh, Mick, this is, this is bad. This is, this is not good. And my brain, I sort of went, well, hang on, well, they're here. It's just a building. And then realisation kicked in and I've gone, you know, the numbers changed. I think they went 21, 18, back to 20, um, deceased or unaccounted for. And it was at that point you, you just go, wow, this is, this is horrible. With the vision he'd filmed and the interviews he'd gathered, Mick heads back to Bundaberg. He calls me on the way and I met him at the station. I called Channel 7's newsroom in Sydney and rapidly pieced together a story which led the National Morning News at 6am. Without Mick's work on the ground, that's simply not possible. Wayne leaves the scene around the same time and heads home with the biggest story of his career. I remember getting home around about four in the morning, or might have been five, uh, five a.m. And my wife saying to me, "What happened?" You know, and I obviously smelt a smoke and from the fire, and I related to her the events of what happened, the fatalities that had found a, a number of bodies, and uh, she, being a ex-ABC employee, uh, immediately logged me on to um, Maryborough to talk to one of the journalists there who took the uh, the first call and the first information that I passed on to any media, I guess. So I'm standing there. I, I, I laugh about it now. I had stripped off ready to hop into the shower when Cathy put me on the phone to to Laurel Eldridge, I think was a journalist in uh, Maryborough at the time. And um, I'm standing there naked talking to Laurel Eldridge, uh, giving details of the backpack of fire. So... They were crazy times, though, mate. They, they were. Yeah. But, uh, and it only got worse after that, you know. Like, it didn't take long for media to get my name and number and and the phones just never stopped. And uh, I'm trying to put out a newspaper at this particular time myself and uh, trying to cater to media call as well, so... I think you had a front page. Yeah. <laughs> we did. Yeah. We did, unfortunately. That ABC radio interview is heard more than 1,200 kilometres away by an intrepid news hound in his Sydney apartment. I worked alone from home for, for about nine different Fleet Street papers, mostly tabloid papers, and at that time of year, although I worked late into the night, I could get up before dawn and catch the last editions of Fleet Street papers if there was any big stories. And that's what happened on that day, June the 23rd. The news broke about four in the morning and I must have been up not long after that and started writing about it for off the ABC radio, news, TV, etc. So I wrote the first story of the tragedy unfolding as it was happening before dawn on June 23. That's Frank Thorne, an award-winning journalist who packed up and moved to Australia in 1994. I'd worked for nearly 20 years in Fleet Street in London, and um, my last newspaper was the Daily Mirror, where our proprietor went overboard with our pension and uh, didn't seem a lot of point sticking around. And I thought there was an opportunity to uh, set up in uh, Australia. I had an Australian girlfriend and uh, I managed to get residency through my de facto partnership and I thought, well, I'll, I'll just take my Fleet Street to Australia and I stayed there 20-odd years, so uh, it all worked out. So you came chasing sunshine, did you? Uh, no, came chasing big stories and that's, that's what happened to me all the time. 
His time in Australia included reporting on cases like the murder of British backpacker Peter Falconio and the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. But it's the fire in Childers which will remain with Frank forever. There was this hostel in a place called Childers, a town in Queensland uh, near Bundaberg that I'd never heard of. And the only thing I knew about Bundaberg was, as an English journalist, was that it was famous for its rum. Um, but I obviously knew it was, it was going to be a huge story. And it was obvious to me, highly likely, that British backpackers were involved. So it was uh, a natural news story that uh, I needed to do a comprehensive piece on. Frank's initial story was sent to the nine newspapers on his list. The first one to reply gets his services. Pretty quickly, he took a call from the Daily Mirror. Now, they locked him in exclusively and wanted Frank and a photographer on the first plane to Bundaberg. I then called the Childers Hotel, which was across the road. I didn't know that at the time, but it was a, it was the first thing I saw on, on, the, on the internet that there's a Childers Hotel, so I... Uh, I rang, uh, spoke to the landlady and one or two of, of the eyewitnesses to bolster my story. But at the same time, I booked the only room available in the pub. The Childers Hotel, directly across the road in the place where the survivors had congregated to check in, have police statements taken and mingle over a beer in the hours immediately after the fire. As you say, in the... Uh, Childers Hotel surrounded by the surviving backpackers who used it as their base before they were able to use the community centre. Did they understand back in the UK the magnitude of it, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I wasn't concerned with what the Daily Mirror back in England would think. I knew it was a, a massive story, a huge tragedy, and it just got bigger. As we were on the little sort of propeller plane going from Brisbane to Bundaberg, we got texts to tell us that the number of dead was rising steadily. So by the time we got to Childers and it started to dawn on us that uh, 15 young people had died and seven of them were, were British backpackers. So you don't get bigger stories than that, really. So obviously the enormity of it was obvious to people in London on the news desks and pitch desks and also myself. Frank boards a flight from Brisbane to Bundaberg. By then, a number of other British journalists are on the story and are on the same plane. He arrives in Childers around midday and immediately goes looking for a story. The media turned up in town like you have no idea. The numbers were just mind-boggling and... Everyone was looking for an angle, everyone was looking for a story. So at one stage we were holding three news conferences a day just to update the media on what had happened, where we were at, those sort of things. When you start setting up camp there, how were you received by those backpackers? By the time you would have got there, they, they'd actually flipped and the and media were starting to become almost public enemy number one. Within minutes of getting out of my car, I'm in the middle of the backpacker survivors who were telling me their personal stories, where they were from and what they'd been doing. And um, it was all very personal. And I, I was staying at the place that they used as their main headquarters, the place where they socialised. 
So I was the only journalist staying there. So I drank at the bar with them. I had breakfast with them. I saw them all the time, every day, day after day. So it was far, far more emotional, far more personal. And a few nights later, I was at the bar of the Children's Hotel when a group of backpackers came up to me and said, Frank, we want to buy you a drink. And um, I, I was a bit ashamed because I thought, well, I've, I've been kind of exploiting these people. And so I said, no, it, it's me that should be buying you a drink. And they said, no, they, they'd read my mirror stories at the local internet cafe and they wanted to thank me for letting their parents back in England know they were safe and well. So I, I was surprised to learn that the backpackers could read my stories in the English Daily Mirror because that was a world away, half a world away, and internet cafes were few and far between, and I'd never been in one at that time. So the internet was in its kind of infancy, and uh, it took me by surprise that the, these young people knew all about them. What a lovely thing to hear uh, from so, backpackers at, a, at an event like that, though. Yeah, well, again, I shed a few tears when they told me that, being a parent. I was quite fortunate. I suppose it helped in a way that I'm a pom, so they treated me like a normal English guy. I'm from Manchester in the north of England, grew up as a working class person in what we call a council house. You call it, you call it local authority housing in Australia. But myself and the photographer rolled into town in a hire car and immediately we saw opposite the still smouldering Palace Backpackers hostel, a group of young people sitting on the curb, smoking and um, talking. And uh, one of them was uh, a young lad from Wigan in Lancashire called Keith O'Brien, who I liked very much. And uh, once we started talking to him, for some reason I was on my own. There were, even though there were a lot of journalists on the plane from Brisbane to Bundaberg, we all split up, we all went in different directions in hire cars. I found myself with this group of backpackers on my own. Keith O'Brien spilled his entire story of how he not only escaped the inferno, but then he went back into the burning building and helped five people, some of them pulled through barred windows, and he helped them escape. So Keith was a genuine hero. And what's more, being from a working class lad from the north of England, that was the heartland of my Daily Mirror readership. So every word that came out of his mouth was like gold bars for me. I didn't really have to write the story. When I spoke to him and the, the other backpackers who got out of the, of the place and were in tears just watching the place smolder from across the road, They'd lost everything, but they opened their hearts to me. And I really didn't have to write the story. It wrote itself. And, and it was an, an incredible account of how they all, in different ways, helped people and survived and somehow got out. I think one point, Keith went back and kicked a door in so that people from downstairs could get out. Keith O'Brien, the burly alpha male from the north of England. Just one of the many remarkable stories of escape and heroism that night. Keep listening to hear from Keith himself. And please subscribe, tell your family and friends, and make sure, if you can, pop into the memorial to the victims of the Childers Backpacker Fire in the main street of the town. 
This podcast is written and produced by me, Paul Cochran, with support from the Bundaberg Regional Council, who do a great job maintaining the memorial in Childers. My thanks to Zoltan Fecho for his work in editing and providing original sound design and composition throughout this series. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.